Today is the day in the church calendar when we observe Jesus' ascension into heaven. Jesus had been appearing to his followers and teaching for 40 days after the resurrection, and that season ended with this event. He took them up to the Mount of Olives, the same mountain on which he wept over Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion, the same mountain on which he went to pray and was betrayed. On that same mountain, Jesus and his disciples had a final poignant conversation. Our text this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Listen now for the word of God. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving God, in whom we live and move and have our being, we ask that you meet us here. Our hearts are heavy, and we come seeking a word from you, a word of comfort, a word of challenge, a word of hope. Quiet all the distractions within and without. Draw us close to you and shape us into the people you dreamed of at creation, in and through this, your holy word. Amen. As Jason spoke about in the announcements, for many of us, the past few weeks have overflowed with a myriad of emotions. The loss of life and amounts of trauma that our neighbors in New York, California, and Texas have experienced has been staggering. And this week's tragedy fell during the same week of the anniversary of George Floyd's killing. A pendulum swings wildly between immense emotions and numbness as we struggle to cope with witnessing these tragedies. Many of us have felt grief, rage, fear, anxiety, horror, powerlessness. I know I have struggled with doom scrolling and what many have been calling rage scrolling inundating myself with information about these tragedies to the point of overwhelm. But in between the stories of the individuals and the horrifying details of their deaths, what I have noticed most people expressing is a deep sense of powerlessness. Because we've seen the statistics about how the majority of Americans, regardless of political affiliation, are in favor of some kind of reform when it comes to how guns are obtained and used. 
many of us have voted for whichever candidates that we believe are most likely to govern our country well. Many of us have donated to various organizations aimed at making effective change. And yet 10 years after Sandy Hook, it feels like nothing has changed. It's so easy to feel powerless. We feel this lack of agency and inability to create the change needed to ensure that our beloved children and neighbors are safe to learn and grow, to buy groceries, to worship, to enjoy a concert. Our scripture today shows us a group of disciples who I'm thinking also felt a sense of powerlessness. They had watched as their beloved teacher and Messiah was tortured and executed. They had mourned while he laid in the tomb. They were amazed at his resurrection. They had listened closely to his teaching over the, the last 40 days. Luke writes that Jesus appeared to them with many convincing proofs and speaking about the kingdom of God. In the story of the walk to Emmaus on Easter evening, Jesus appeared and opened the scriptures to two disciples, tracing this thread from creation through the events of the previous week. Jesus had spent 40 days in this season of resurrection, preparing his followers for a new season of ministry. But we don't have any indication in the scripture that the disciples thought that Jesus would leave them. He was risen. He had unimaginable power. He had conquered death. So surely now the revolution would begin. Surely now Rome would be overthrown and Jesus would reign as king, right? That hope and longing was threaded through the disciples' question to Jesus on the mountaintop. Lord, is this the time? when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? The restoration they spoke of had two layers of meaning. They meant a literal shift of power, abolishing the oppressive Roman Empire. It would have been a political restoration, a return to the good old days of David's reign when Israel experienced prosperity and power. But this phrase, restore the kingdom to Israel, also had a deeper spiritual meaning. There was a long legacy of God choosing the people of Israel and caring for them in a special way. And in and through that chosenness, God told the people of Israel that people of other nations and other beliefs would come to know that God loved them too. The restoration the disciples spoke of would be a restoration to the joy and life and love experienced in the Garden of Eden, a reconciliation with God before the introduction of sin into the world. After all they had experienced by Jesus' side, he took them up on the Mount of Olives, which would have signaled to them that something important would happen. And their question to Jesus was understandable. But Jesus responded, as he often did, with a roundabout answer. He didn't say yes, or no, or soon. He responded with, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Now that language is pretty formal, and at first glance it can seem even a little cold. But let's remember who Jesus had shown himself to be, a person of grace, peace, tenderness, and love. Can we imagine him saying that with a gentle tone, the kind of tone a loving parent might use with their child who asks an impossible question? Oh honey, some things we just can't know. I know that's hard. 
Then Jesus followed that up with this really important sentence. It was a promise that would be fulfilled to them soon, and it was a promise that's still being fulfilled to us today. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. I want to unpack three words in that sentence. First, the word power. In the Greek, this word for power has a very particular connotation. In this text, power does not mean force or domination or conquering. It means a miraculous kind of power. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's used to describe miracles or Jesus' actions on earth. It is a kind of power that makes the impossible possible. It is sacred, it is holy, it is unlike any kind of power that we can grasp at or have on earth. The second word is Holy Spirit. Often we mention the Holy Spirit as a person of the Trinity without really considering what that means. Because when we speak of a human person's spirit, we mean something like their soul or their core essence, the center of who they are. And if that's what we understand that to mean, then the Spirit of God is part of God's core essence, but it's also more than that. Throughout the Bible, the Spirit of God is understood to be the breath of life, the source of wisdom, something that nourishes and sustains all of creation. The Spirit is what God breathed into the first humans, the core essence of God from which our core essence is made. In this story, Jesus told the disciples that they would receive a miraculous sense of power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. The Holy Spirit that created them, the soul of God, would come to them in a new and different way, miraculously empowering them to do the kingdom building to which they had been called. And the third word I want to focus on is witnesses. In this context, it meant someone who could affirm and attest to the truth of something. These disciples would be empowered to affirm and attest to the truth of Jesus' resurrection. They had seen with their own eyes. They had touched the risen Jesus with their own hands. They had shared meals with him. Wherever the disciples might normally encounter skepticism and doubt about the truthfulness of their stories, the Holy Spirit would be there with them, making those stories effective and believable. In other words, when asked about when Jesus would accomplish the restoration of Israel, Jesus said, it will happen through you and your stories and God's Holy Spirit. The restoration had begun and would be accomplished not in a moment by Jesus demonstrating a dominating, conquering political power, but in and through the work of witnessing. And what was it that they had witnessed? Healing, revelation, unconditional love and sacrifice, an empty tomb, resurrection. But they had also witnessed brokenness. The stories they had to share also included shame, betrayal, horror, grief, rage, and sorrow. One of the greatest consolations and strengths of our faith tradition is its capacity to make space for both lament and hope to coexist. We live in a world that does not do lament well. We live in a society that avoids expressing grief at all costs. 
For example, there's no memorial for the over one million lives lost to COVID. There's been no national day of mourning and there have been very few rituals and practices employed to name and grieve that immense loss. And likewise, with these recent tragedies of gun violence, our elected officials may express their condolences or their feelings, but on a communal level, that expression of grief is stifled. It's repressed and comes out sideways in social media posts and dysfunctional interactions with other people. I know I struggle with this, even as I would describe myself as a pretty emotional person. I can get teary at car commercials. I have never seen an episode of This Is Us because I know I would be a wreck. <laughs> I just tend to avoid it all too much. I actually swing through to the other end of the spectrum. But eventually, as a fairly clumsy person, I will stub my toe or bang into something that kind of involuntarily brings some tears to my eyes. And all of a sudden, I'm weeping not over stubbing my toe, but all of the weight and worry and grief that I didn't realize I was holding. When we do not express lament, we begin to lose hope. We become overcome and overwhelmed with despair. I recently finished a book by Cole Arthur Riley called This Here Flesh, in which she weaves together stories of her family's history and explorations of various emotions and spiritual experiences. In the chapter titled Lament, she describes the connection between lament and hope in this way. Lament is not anti-hope. It's not even a stepping stone to hope. Lament itself is a form of hope. It's an innate awareness that what is should not be. As if something is written on our hearts that tells us exactly what we are meant for and whenever confronted with something contrary to this, we experience a crumbling. Our hope can only be as deep as our lament is, and our lament as deep as our hope. So how do we become people of hope? We name our grief and we name our hope. And the church has a unique capacity for this. In scripture, in symbols, and rituals, and written and spoken liturgy, we have been given a language to express lament and hope. Many of the Psalms do this well. Psalm 22, quoted by Jesus on the cross, begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. That psalm continues with more words of grief, but also more words of faith and hope. It is a testimony, a witnessing to God's faithfulness and companionships, even in the depths of pain and grief. Countless other psalms and scriptures do the same thing. Scripture is one place that we see this at work, but it also happens here in worship, too. Last fall here at Old Pine, we made space during worship service to come forward and light a candle to commemorate a loss that we had experienced during the pandemic. It was a powerful experience, and I know many of us felt that lament and hope all wrapped up together. But even more often, every single Sunday, we make space here in worship for prayer requests. During those moments, sometimes tears might be shed. Dreams are often shared. Sorrows are named. Joys are celebrated. Vulnerability is modeled week after week in this very room 
And I hope you know what gifts those prayers are. Those prayers offered in this community show a trust, both in God to listen, but also in the people of this room to hold those prayers closely. We lament and we hope together. We work for a safer world where our children and neighbors can flourish together. We were made in the image of God, God the creator, the redeemer and sustainer, God the source of miraculous power to create, build, and nourish, God the source of all breath and life. We were not designed to be or feel powerless. We were not designed to perpetually have a lack of agency. We were designed to create, to build, to nourish. And in the face of the brokenness of the world, we have been invited by Jesus to be witnesses, to tell the truth about the ways the world is not as it should be, and to tell the truth about the resurrection, the new life, the miraculous power offered to all people. Our scripture passage today ends with two angels asking the disciples what seems like a very strange question to me. While Jesus was ascending into a cloud, most likely to the shock and surprise of the disciples, two angels appear and say, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It reminds me of the question the angels asked the women who came to the empty tomb on Easter morning, why do you look for the living among the dead? These kinds of questions reorient us. They expose our unmet expectations. In the case of Easter morning, the women weren't looking for the living among the dead. They were looking for the dead among the dead. But the angel's question began to reveal that things were not as they seemed. In this story, of course the disciples are looking up toward heaven. Jesus was still ascending. But the angel's words imply that they might have been waiting for him to come right back down again, or that they were looking up to heaven to hear some additional message from God. The angel's question challenged the disciples not to look up, but to look around. An ending had happened, but in that ending there was a beginning. Jesus was no longer with them in a bodily way on earth, but he had invited them into life-changing work, witnessing to his resurrection all over the world, witnessing to all the lament and hope that they had seen and experienced, and he promised that they wouldn't have to muster up the courage and the strength to do that on their own. The Holy Spirit would grant them miraculous power to tell stories that would change the world. When they were disheartened, when injustice still happened, when they experienced grief, the Holy Spirit would give them the strength to grieve and the strength to hope again. The Holy Spirit would empower them to share stories that would build and grow the kingdom of God, a kingdom in which love and justice replace sin and tragedy. A world in which no precious lives are stolen by violence. A world in which every tear is wiped away. A world in which every single person knows deep down in their bones how beloved they are by God. A world in which we do what we were designed to do, to create, build, and nourish life. We are called to not look up for some divine intervention that will happen in spite of us or outside of us. We're called to look around, to witness to the ways God is already at work. So where do we see kindness, even in the midst of grief? Where do we see gentleness, even in the midst of sorrow? Where do we see justice, even in the midst of brokenness? 
Can we share those stories just as often as we share the stories of loss and injustice? We're called to lament and we're called to hope. They are bound together. We need the lament to get to the hope. I want to close with a brief story that has been a really strong reminder to me this week of God's call to look around. Before my son was born, I spent a lot of time thinking about what song I would sing to him as a lullaby. In the face of the overwhelming new experience of becoming a parent, I read all of the books and all of the articles, and the consensus was that having the same routine before sleep would help baby fall asleep more easily. The same rhythm, the same song, even the same words that we say as we leave the room would all act as cues that would aid in sleep. So I wanted to pick a song that I wouldn't get sick of singing. But I also wanted to pick a song that Julian would, over time, associate with safety and peace and lay a foundation of faith. I landed on a Tizé song, In the Lord I'll Be Ever Thankful. And I'd really love for you to hear it. So I've asked Tom and the choir to help us sing it through. It's on page 654 in your hymnal. I'll invite you to sing with us. Tom's going to give us a few notes on the piano, and then we'll sing it together. sung that song before every nap and every bedtime. Some nights I have sung that song over and over again trying to soothe a wailing baby. I did the math and in the two and a half years since Julian was born I have sung it well over 2,000 times. Now my husband Sean is a bit of a goof and recently to be silly he ad-libs the song as I'm singing. So when I sing the words I will rejoice he says, woohoo. When I sing, do not be afraid, he pipes up with no fear. And when I sing, the Lord is near, he says, right here. Julianne has picked up on this just this week, actually, and has started doing the same thing. So I'm singing this calming, peaceful song, singing, the Lord is near, and Julianne is half shouting in my ear, right here, right here. Isn't that the truth? The Lord is near, right here. Maybe not in the ways we expect, maybe not even in the ways that we want, but right here, nonetheless. Lift up your voices, lift up your laments and your hopes. The Lord is near, not up there, not far away, right here, right here. Why are you looking up? Look around. The God who creates, redeems, and sustains is right here, offering us God's very spirit to dwell within us, giving us the strength to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus, even as we lament. 
Why are you looking up? Look around. Amen. <laughs>